All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Standard issue for all women. May the 3rd, 2019 marks 40 years since Margaret Thatcher became the UK's first female Prime Minister. She remains one of the most divisive figures in British political history. She's a role model in a big way. Well, let's put it this way, I don't wish anybody dead, but I'm glad she's gone. But how should we remember her? We spoke to 22 women, some of whom knew her, most of whom spent their formative years in Thatcher's Britain. She was talked about in my household more than any other figure, even members of our family. She was like the Wicked Witch of the West. That's how she was painted to us as children. We asked them what they remember about the Iron Lady. We were losing jobs left, right and centre. She took tea with Pinochet. I couldn't understand how she still kept winning elections. She always had that weird helmet hair and she wore those weird blue suits that I thought, I don't know what shop you get those from, but they're not on sale. And about what they think her legacy is. For the country, for communities and for individual households across the UK. Ideologies are often dangerous. The 1980s didn't actually stop until 1997. And while she's certainly become a benchmark for how women in power are judged. 
a gay man turned to me and said, well, you were the Margaret Thatcher of gay politics. And everybody behind him took one pace backwards. Theresa May can be Theresa May because Thatcher was Thatcher. What legacy has she left women in this country? Here is a woman who's got to the top and she's not brought one woman with her. I'm guessing that Mrs Thatcher at some point went through the menopause. She was no sister to us, but I feel I can be a sister to her. What should we remember about that bloody woman? There may be an adjective between that and woman, only no one will tell me what it is. In this first episode of our two-part documentary exploring Margaret Thatcher's legacy, we look at the impact she had on women and minorities. And given we're standard issue, we're starting off with women. Margaret Thatcher was a political phenomenon, the longest-serving British Prime Minister for 150 years, residing at number 10 from May 4th, 1979 to November 22nd, 1990. Born Margaret Hilda Roberts in 1925, she was a lower-middle-class grocer's daughter, brought up in the Lincolnshire town of Grantham. She studied chemistry at Oxford, where she was tutored by future Nobel Prize winner Dorothy Hodgkin and graduated in 1947. Two years later, and despite some Conservative Party members being outraged at having a 23-year-old woman as their candidate, she was selected to contest the hopeless Kent seat of Dartford, which she contested again in both the 1950 and 1951 general elections. In 1951, she wed wealthy family firm man Dennis Thatcher, and two years later gave birth to their twins, Mark and Carol. While still in the maternity hospital, Thatcher signed up to study for her bar finals and was called to the bar in 1954. Four years on, in 1958, she was selected for the rock-solid North London constituency of Finchley, the seat she represented from October 1959 until she retired at the general election in 1992. A young woman with a new family becoming an MP was unprecedented. In October 1961, after just 20 months on the back benches, then Prime Minister Harold Macmillan made her junior pensions minister, and by 1967, with her party in opposition, new party leader Ted Heath had her in the shadow cabinet. When he won the election of June 1970, she became education secretary, and the only woman in the cabinet. She defeated Ted Heath for the leadership of the Conservative Party in 1975, and four years later took her party to victory, becoming Britain's first ever female Prime Minister. When she became Prime Minister in 1979, there were just 19 women elected to Westminster. By the last general election of her tenure in 1987, there were 41. And while she was there, well, we'll get to that. Margaret Thatcher died aged 87 in 2013. In Britain, the Thatcher years were a watershed. But how much did Margaret Thatcher embody her ideology? Is it possible to separate the woman from her politics? To those waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies, not for turning. <laughs> for all her flaws, that's the one thing you could say positively about Thatcher, is that she had a set of beliefs, she had an ideology, and she stuck to it. And she bent the world to her will. A lot of Thatcher, a lot of it was, was ruling by fear and intimidation. A tough woman is a hard thing to get past. I speak as a tough woman. That's Val McDermott, crime writer, question time regular, and woman who takes no shit. Here's what Dame Professor Athene Donald, the Master of Churchill College, Cambridge, which houses the Thatcher Papers, has to say. She was the first female Prime Minister, and that was 
very notable and nothing will ever overturn that. Whether she was a good role model, I think one can question. But if you are the first, it can be quite difficult. There weren't many female Conservative MPs at the time. There weren't many female MPs at the time. So she, of course, stood out. But her legacy is undoubtedly extremely divisive. And people, I think, remember her sort of bruising attitude and the way she got the poll tax wrong rather than some of the things she did achieve. She probably would have regretted that if she knew that was how she was going to be remembered. But she would still have gone full steam ahead, I think. If anyone was going to succeed at Westminster in the 60s and 70s, and she did, remember she was a cabinet minister in the 60s, you had to recognise the norms and decide whether to conform or challenge them. That's former politician Edwina Curry, who served as a Conservative MP from 1983 until 1997 and was a junior health minister for two years in Thatcher's government. It became very handy to be a woman in the House of Commons because you were so visible, particularly after the Commons began to be broadcast from 87 onwards. Much easier than for the men. We stood out. We got a lot more attention. That could be useful. It could be a pain. But there were other ways in which, subtly, it was important to recognise the assumptions. So, for example, one of the assumptions was that women would not be as reliable as men because they had other responsibilities, family responsibilities. So I had always adopted a practice of being very reliable. If I said I was going to do something, I did it. I was there early. I got it finished early. I always added value. And I didn't promise anything I couldn't be absolutely sure of delivering. So that gets over that issue of, oh, well, women may be very good, but they are a bit flighty. Not this one. And indeed not Margaret. Edwina might make fairly light of being a woman in Parliament, but there's no doubt that Thatcher's achievements were unprecedented. Here's Aisha Hazarika, former Labour advisor and now commentator, feminist and comedian. If you're on the left, you're programmed understandably to be like, oh my God, terrible, terrible, terrible. But she led a very interesting life and stuff she did was really interesting. And as a woman, to have got where she did at that time is absolutely incredible. Jess Phillips, who's been the Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley since 2015, agrees. It's quite unbelievable that Margaret Thatcher got to where she did in that era in the Conservative Party when she had two children, twin children. I mean, the woman must have been demented or have had loads of help. Drive you mad having twins. You can sort of split Margaret Thatcher into two. That's Aisha again. There is what she did to the country, which I think as somebody on the left, as somebody who cares about community and society, I think she did some really bad things for the country which have had a terrible legacy. But I think her personal story of being a woman in politics is fascinating as well because it's hard enough for a woman now to get on in politics. When I think of how tough she had to be to get to the top, I think that was an extraordinary achievement. I stand before you tonight in my red star chiffon evening gown, <laughs> my face softly made up and my fair hair gently waved. <laughs> the Iron Lady of the Western World. She created an image, and that image was largely created in the early days by the men around her. That's Caroline Slowcock, the first female private secretary at number 10, serving from 1988 to 1990, and the author of People Like Us, Me and Margaret Thatcher. She had to be very conscious of how she looked, and I think she embraced 
the term Iron Lady, even though it was intended as an insult and it was first given by the Russians. She tried to show herself as sort of tough to become an image that people would accept. There was a whole long tradition, which goes back to classical times. Mary Beard has written of powerful women as being seen as threatening and androgynous through into Elizabeth I with, I may have the body of a woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. I think she probably did try to project that image of being more than a woman. But what I could see in her was that she was immensely actually feminine. And actually her power was derived from being different from the men. Feminine or not, Edwina Curry explains, as leader of the government, Thatcher had to be prepared for tough times. We expected violence. We expected to have to be on our guard. We expected atrocities. They came up all the time. And Thatcher loved it. Here's Aisha. Going to war with people in politics, you should never actively want to go to war. If you actively want to go to war all the time, I would sort of suggest that you have quite a significant character flaw slightly psychopathic and possibly like not the best person to be leading a country but for her she thrived from conflict and again that made her very interesting because the trope the sort of gender sex trope is that women don't like conflict and yet here was a woman who was absolutely at her happiest and at her best when she was going to war with somebody whether it was the Argentinians over the Falklands whether it was the unions over the miners strike she loved going to war the poll tax is a really good example. Even when everybody was saying to her, this is a fight that is so, so not worth having, she still persisted and she was still adamant that she could win. In the end, the war she couldn't ultimately win is when she went to war with her own cabinet and she went to war with her own party. Aisha's not kidding. Even Edwina Curry agrees. She loved an argument. With a bit of luck, you didn't come up against her. You came up alongside her gasping for air in no time at all. She loved a debate, and she loved you arguing back with her. She liked testing her abilities. That's why she got on so well with Gorbachev. Caroline argues Thatcher had no choice but to be a fighter. She had to deal with that kind of bear pit, which is the House of Commons. I think she was never part of the club. Nigel Lawson, her chancellor, who resigned about a year before she was finally forced to resign, has written about her more recently that she was extremely headmistressy and she wasn't clubbable. She was unclubbable. You know, she wasn't part of the boys' club. She was fighting them, I think. She was fighting the status quo, not just in the country, she saw it, but also in her own party. You know, she, she was just different. I think she felt she had to fight all the way against the men to get what she wanted done, as she saw it, for the good of the country. So I think that uh, boys' club, you don't see it when you look at her image, but I think it's part of what shaped the woman that we now see. But was Thatcher one of us? News journalist, writer and broadcaster Samira Ahmed argues that there were moments. British Airways was one of the first big national industries that got privatised. And very successfully, British Airways was already profitable. It featured in my teenage diary about, I think it was 84, about how it was obviously about to be privatised. And when she was invited to HQ or something, and she saw the new tail fin, it didn't look like British Airways. It didn't have a British flag on it. And she didn't exactly say anything. She just opened her handbag and she got out a handkerchief and she just covered the tail fin with a handkerchief. And I just thought... I just thought, good on her, because whether or not you agreed with the tailspin design, 
there was something really honest. There was something really relatable about the way she did that, which is, this is what I think. And actually, it was completely logical what she meant. She said, look, this is a bit of an embarrassment. And you've thrown away the national brand. That's one of her moments where she showed you how she could be in touch with something that was genuine and authentic, to use that dreaded word. But a lot of the women we spoke to found Thatcher a cold fish. Here's Alison Inman, a former president of the Chartered Institute of Housing, who during the 1980s worked in the women's aid sector and was a Labour councillor. I wouldn't have wanted to go for a pint with her. She felt incredibly cold. There wasn't a sense of her as a human. And I think as a woman, her life was very, very different to most women who were around in the 80s. I think it felt this creature is governing us, but she's not of us. Never got the sense of feeling of warmth. You got those other things that people wanted. So strength, whatever that means. I think she was seen as inefficient. She knew what she wanted and she did it. Now, the fact that what she wanted was not something I wanted. You have to give her credit for, for some of that. There's no doubt, though, that Margaret Thatcher, lover or hate her, was hugely influential, which is why Samira fought to get her included in a list of the most influential women of the 21st century. It seemed to me obvious Margaret Thatcher should be on it, and there was at least one or two other women who were older than me who said, of course she should. But everyone else in the room was like, there's no way, there's no way. You know, she's, she's been terrible for women. And I thought, but she's been influential. I think we have to learn to recognise achievement in people we may disagree with ideologically. People who live with her have a very troubled relationship with her. But the fact is that she's still in our heads. You can't escape her. And her influence is so pervasive, just everywhere, really. It's part of our world, like it or not. Caroline's right. So, let's look at what Thatcher did, good or bad, for women in politics. Would you like to order, sir? Yes, I will have a steak. How do you like it? Oh, raw, please. And what about the vegetables? Oh, they'll have the same as me. That was what's one of probably the most famous scenes for my TV's long-running satirical puppet show, Spitting Image. Funny? Absolutely. Sexist? No doubt. That Spitting Image puppet is an incredibly sexist construct, created by men, of course. It's really pernicious, you know, even today I have conversations with people and they say it's the first image that springs to mind. Perhaps in some ways the Iron Lady image encouraged that way of thinking, but I think we need to actually start to see her more clearly. I don't think any woman in politics has achieved what she did and I don't think any woman in politics has navigated with such skill the sexist, patriarchal, hierarchical club that she did. I don't think anybody has. I don't know if anybody will, again... Aisha's right, and, as Edwina Curry explains, it made Thatcher someone to look up to, for her at least. She came into Parliament in 1959. By the time we got to the 1964 and 66 elections, she was government minister. And at that point, I'm at Oxford, and I'm thinking hard about whether I want to be an MP. And if you look, then at who were the women MPs, most of them were single women. Most of them were dame this and miss that. There was Margaret Thatcher, who was an attractive, very pretty, clever scientist, mother of young children. She came into the Commons when her twins were only six, and it became apparent that it could be done. So she's a role model in a big way. Margaret Thatcher might have been Edwina's role model, but Dame Athene questions whether Thatcher was a good role model for other women. I think her attitude towards other women is interesting. She certainly didn't do much that won friends amongst women. She did not nurture the next generation particularly. 
And that means that she's obviously divisive as a role model too. And that possibly is because she was of her time when she was such a rare creature that perhaps she didn't feel she could afford to be generous. I also understand that she, in a way, didn't have much experience of interacting with other women because there weren't other women for her to interact with. Her natural way of dealing with people was to deal with men. And that may also have played into her inability to deal with some of the more career-focused women around her. And here's Caroline, adding even more fuel to the ladders that Thatcher set fire to on her ascent. I think she did actually believe in equality for women. You know, how could she not, having got to where she got against all the obstacles that she faced? But I think she felt much more comfortable professionally around men. I think that was the world that she knew, and she didn't support other women around her. There were very few, it has to be said. People perhaps don't realise just how few women there were you know, women MPs who could be promoted. But she, she'd only had one woman in her cabinet and demoted her rather humiliatingly within two years. We believe, I mean, I never heard it from her personally, but that she had prevented women from being put forward to the role that I eventually filled. I know because I've only found this out recently, but the policy unit, which was slightly less close to her, you know, she didn't decide who, who came to the policy unit directly through interviewing, but uh, she was consulted. And the policy unit had, had one woman, the first ever woman in the policy unit about a year before I arrived. And the head of the policy unit asked her if he could bring in another one. And she said, oh, Brian, I think we should see how the first one does, don't you? which is an extraordinary act of, of discrimination. It's treating women as if they're almost an alien species, not like her. That's awful, isn't it? But at the same time, she did, <laughs> you know, I suppose, you know, one of the things to say about women of that generation is that they didn't network with other women. They didn't feel kind of sisterhood, partly because there were so few of us. But yes, I think she was a woman who liked being amongst men. And I think she enjoyed, actually, the power and the attention. That's unlikable, but I think one has to kind of see it in its context. What Margaret Thatcher achieved and how she behaved in power made it both easier and harder for the women in politics who came after her. Here's Jess with a tale of two very different strong women influencing her childhood. My nan was a little lady at the local school. She was a proper rabble-rousing socialist activist who would chain herself to things and campaign for stuff. And my nan used to come round, notwithstanding, come round to do the ironing for my mum on a Thursday. And my nan would always make us watch Prime Minister's Questions on the television. And so as a kid, I can't help but think that I sat there with another strong woman watching a woman on the television in this seat of power and so it didn't seem unusual to me that women would be in politics. And I think that Thatcher certainly must have had that effect on lots of young people. It never seemed unusual to me, the idea that women could be politicians. But she certainly was no feminist activist. And I don't think that she made any strides to helping other women follow her up the ladder at all. She certainly didn't do anything specific, have any schemes, encourage women. She constantly wanted to paint herself as not having got the role because she was a woman, or even in spite of the fact that she was a woman. She wished for it to be completely not part of her identity. She set the mould of a woman in politics being one way, that to get anywhere, you have to not be particularly feminist or not be particularly feminine. 
in doing that, she actually has, in lots of ways, damaged the way that women see female politicians, that you are always benchmarked against this idea of a woman politician. Indeed. Sophie Walker, feminist activist and founding leader of the Women's Equality Party, doesn't beat around the bush. Margaret Thatcher was not a feminist. More than that, I think she did huge damage to ideas of women in leadership. You know, she promoted the idea that A, that a meritocracy exists, in which, (laughs) if that's the case, then white, upper middle class, non-disabled straight men, you know, clearly just have some sort of a gift that the rest of us don't have. She promoted the idea that to get ahead, you have to behave like a man. That whole very entrenched 80s idea that women get ahead when they are aggressive and stereotypically masculine, that you get a thick skin. She really entrenched these ideas of leadership in a sort of heroic male style, which I think is really, really damaging. I think it's damaging to men and women. I don't think it helps politics to be run by despots like that. I think you have to understand that leadership is an action as well as a role and that leadership is also about the kind of people that you bring on and that you mentor and she failed to show much empathy with other women and she roundly failed to mentor or support other women in politics and I think she quite liked the boys club aspect. All that said, Sophie does acknowledge that there were some positives for women looking to politics to be gained during Thatcher's tenure. She kept going through everything, unemployment at three million, hunger strikes by IRA prisoners, social unrest from breaking the unions, poll tax, she famously got by on four hours sleep. Now, all of this sounds like an absolute nightmare to me. If I was leading a political party and that was my legacy, I would think I had roundly failed. But to some, she very much proves the idea that women can handle politics, they can handle the cut and thrust of it. Unfortunately, she also shored up the idea that, you know, you have to behave like a, I think, a a stereotypically aggressive, thick-skinned, slightly boorish male style of leader. Her attitude was also a boon to feminism, though possibly not in a way she would have wanted, as Aisha explains. She inspired a generation of women on the left to become very committed to feminism and to very much encourage them to get into politics. And I think it made them think, right, if we ever got the opportunity she did, how would we do things differently? She spawned a whole generation of people that went on to become household names, Tessa Jowell, Harriet Harman, you know, a whole range of sort of women in politics that I think looked at what she did and thought, right, we want to be women in politics to work for the good of other women and not just for yourself. So that's Thatcher's effect on women in politics. What about women in general? When she was elected leader of the Conservative Party, there was a certain amount of feminist excitement. I mean, genuinely, we thought, at last, we've got a woman leading a major party. This is exciting. But it didn't take very long for us to recognise that Margaret Thatcher was no kind of feminist. She was precisely the kind of woman who pulls the ladder up behind her, in fact, and then throws the boiling oil down. It was pretty quickly we realised that she wasn't, she certainly wasn't one of us. She wasn't people like us. The furthering of feminist causes was not something that was going to be on the agenda for her. I can't think of any specific moment. It was a sort of slow dawning that this was not going to be somebody who was going to be good for women. That was Val. And she wasn't alone in her hopes being raised and then quickly dashed. Here's Alison. There was a sense, you know, as a 16-year-old, that there's a woman in charge. And that was really, really powerful because we'd never seen anything like it. And I think those years up until the mid-80s were my journey into being a proper paid-up 
feminazi is that what we are nowadays and it was that sense of disappointment it was those years of realizing that actually here is a woman who's got to the top and she's not brought one woman with her you know as i matured you begin to see actually what we see with thatcher is a woman governing as a man that sense of thatcher ruling like a man it came up a lot here's sophie one of the things she said that i must object to was i didn't get here by being a strident female I don't like strident females, which I think not only demonstrated a stunning lack of self-knowledge, but also suggested entrenched ideas that women have to behave in a certain way to get ahead. There was perhaps a reason for her choosing to be this way, as Samira explains. She tried many times to be an MP. She'd always find herself up against returning soldiers with medals, and you just couldn't win against them in the sense that it was their right and women should go back into the home and leave politics to men. We don't need you in the workplace anymore. And I think that's what a lot of women would recognise and to some extent sympathise with. But then what she chose to do with that power when she got elected is what many women and men cannot forgive. But sympathise or not, there's no escaping the selfishness of that approach. Right, Aisha? I think she achieved great things for herself on a personal level she was very good at climbing up the ladder but what did she do with that power she didn't use it to necessarily help other women she didn't really sort of think right i'm going to have any feminist legacy in fact she didn't refer to herself as a feminist at all and i don't think she used her power for good her political ideology was very much selfish the essence was there's no such thing as society it's all about the individual everyone needs to crack on and amass as much for themselves it's capitalism all the way, privatise everything, buy your own council house, don't think about your neighbours, don't think about public services, don't think about collective bargaining, smash the trade unions. And in a way, that selfish ideology, I think, was very much she applied to herself. You know, I have to get to the top. I have to get to this top job. I've got to keep power. I've got to amass power. I think she embodied the cult of the individual all of which had an effect on how other women grew up seeing her. Looking back at some of the sort of press coverage that she got, I certainly think she was treated in a way and spoken about in a way that certainly a, a male prime minister wouldn't get. And we've seen it again with Theresa May, the obsession with what she's wearing. Because I came from a staunchly Labour home, there were other women that were pointed out to me as, as role models, like Barbara Castle, for example, and later on Mo Morlam. That was Lisa Holsworth, writer for Stage and Screen and the Deputy Chair of the Writers Guild of Great Britain. Here's Libby Lybird, actor, writer and single mum, and she's talking about Thatcher's hardline approach to single parent families. She actually said something in 1998, after she left power, she said that she thought that it would be more beneficial for the children and the mothers, single parent families, to be in the hands of a very good religious organisation so that they learnt family values. When she said that, you know, just basically coming out and saying single parent families are that bad that really they're better off in the hands of a religious organisation, it's kind of just telling you what she really thinks. She used language like illegitimate and it was all very much on the mums. It was all very much on the mums. It was never like family values and, and what we're going to do about fathers that are not necessarily stepping up to responsibility. It was always very much on the mums. Well, it certainly wasn't on the state. Over to you, Sophie. I think she set us back decades in terms of framing childcare as absolutely nothing to do with the state. 
when in fact feminist understanding of investment in care understands that it's economic investment. Margaret Thatcher froze child benefit. She criticised working mothers for creating a creche generation. And I think that really embedded the idea that uh, it's a lifestyle choice, right? That hideous phrase that women sort of make these feckless decisions all on their own to have children and, and must then be left alone to deal with the consequences of that. Yeah, Margaret Thatcher wasn't a woman's woman. Samira again, getting it bang on. But I wonder if it's to do with the sense that she regarded herself as exceptional. You know, a bit like Elizabeth I, who was probably her role model. You know, she probably thought, I have a man's heart in a woman's body. And she didn't want to admit to anything else. She really failed to understand the structural inequalities facing women. That's Sophie again. She did a lot of damage with her idea that that we live in a meritocracy. Now, I don't believe that. I don't believe we live in a meritocracy. I don't think it's possible in patriarchal systems for women to have equal opportunities as men, because I think, you know, men are obviously favoured by structures that are built for and by men and, and, and understand and see primarily the male experience. And I think that, particularly for my for my mum, as a young mother, trying to work and to uh, look after me, the total lack of empathy or understanding or interest in, for example, childcare needs was very upsetting and very frustrating. Margaret Thatcher, it would seem, was no feminist. And that is according to every woman we spoke to, except one, sort of. Caroline, was Margaret Thatcher a feminist? She didn't see herself as a woman's liber. That's what's the terminology of the time, which is very much associated with left-wing radical politics. She disassociated herself with that. And she didn't support women. So in that sense, definitely no. But actually, she was, you know, and I wrote speeches with her, and I know that she felt this sincerely. She genuinely did want to see more women in power. And clearly, just by her own example, she believed in the equality of women. So I think if feminism is defined as believing in women's equality, yes, I think she was a feminist. And as Aisha explains, Thatcher has empowered a certain type of woman. I think she's inspired a new generation of right-wing young women who really aspire to do what she did. They are proudly anti-feminist. They are proudly individualistic. They're proudly we don't think there's a problem with any of this stuff. We're going to get on in this structure, and that means that if we can get on, anybody can get on. We don't need patronising rights for women. We don't need to close a gender pay gap. It's a choice that women make. I kind of see her spirit resurrected in this new breed of alt-right younger women on the scene at the moment. One small step forward for men wanting a sandwich, one giant leap backwards for feminism. Thanks, Maggie. Hey there, you lot. If you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media and why wouldn't you because you're only human you can we're on twitter as a team at standard issue uk or individually on at inspiragen at that dunleavy and at mixter noonan and i'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who we're on facebook as well at standard issue magazine and even instagram at standard issue podcast come to us look at our faces Hi, Hannah here, just having a nice cup of tea and wanted to remind you that if you like what we do, you can help support us. You can do that by going to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com 
forward slash standard issue where you can throw some readies at us to help us keep producing the kind of thing that you seem to enjoy listening to and also keep me in tea. Thank you. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. The LGBT community, or the lesbian and gay community as it was known in the 1980s, was hit by two major storms under Thatcher's regime and it emerged from the decade much altered. In 1981, the UK saw its first death from AIDS. The following year, after Terry Higgins died from an AIDS-related illness, his friends set up a charity which would become the Terence Higgins Trust. Many believe that the prevalence of AIDS among gay men was the reason many governments reacted slowly to the growing epidemic. The legacy of Ronald Reagan is permanently scarred by his failure to tackle the AIDS crisis in the US. Can the same be said of Margaret Thatcher? Lisa Power is a former policy director at the Terence Higgins Trust and one of the founders of the LGBT rights charity Stonewall. I think that Margaret Thatcher's reaction to AIDS was not that dissimilar to Ronald Reagan's, except that she had a cabinet around her who weren't going to let her ignore it. She wasn't presidential in the same way. Margaret Thatcher's view was that people should behave themselves and only have sex with one person in their life in marriage. And when she was confronted with AIDS, the whole thing was completely alien to her. When they first discussed in Cabinet having some sort of a campaign to inform the public, she was very clear that she only wanted them to have notices on the back of toilet doors, just like the old VD ones in the 1950s and 60s. She opposed the existence of the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, and she thought the whole thing was terribly intrusive. And basically, the, the, the only way that they got it past her in Cabinet was to form a committee, which was run by Willie Whitelaw, who she trusted completely. And he ran the committee and basically let Norman Fowler get on with it, thank goodness. A few years ago, when I was working for Terence Higgins Trust in policy work, I squired Norman Fowler, who was doing a talk for us in a fringe meeting around the Tory party conference. Effectively, he needed a bodyguard because he's like catnip to elderly Tory ladies and young Tory gay men. They all want to grab him and talk to him. But I was squiring him around the centre in Birmingham and we were about to go into somewhere when Kenneth Clark, who was at that point still in government and his entourage, came in the other direction. And Ken Clark said, Norman, Norman, what are you doing here? And Norman said, oh, I'm here to give a talk. What about Norman? Well, about AIDS. You're still doing that, Norman. Well, yes, one does what one can. And then Kenneth Clark leaned over and said sort of very conspiratorially but loudly in Norman's ear, you know, Norman, we never thought you'd get all that past the lady. It was done by sleight of hand. I mean, the fact is that Britain did more faster than any other Western government when it all hit. But that was very largely down to Norman Fowler and a few other people, the chief medical officer, for example, who really understood what the problem was. And they put it through under Margaret Thatcher's nose, basically said, don't worry about it, dear, we'll deal with it. Here's how Edwina Curry, a junior health minister at the time, remembers it. She wasn't against the AIDS campaign in 1986. We were the first country in the world. No, we weren't the first country in the world. Sweden had had an AIDS campaign. But we were the first country to tackle AIDS as a national public health issue in a big way and to direct it at the public, not just at the gay community. 
I was on that team. The only instruction I had from my boss, Norman Fowler, was no jokes, Edwina. He had from a cabinet meeting in which he has secured full permission, which involved uh, sending out a, a booklet, an explicit booklet, to every household in the country. Uh, 23 million of these things. We had to agree the wording. And he came back and he said, that, well, the good news is we've got it through. And the other good news is that Prime Minister doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And we all cheered. We felt at that point, you know, there had been a sort of gay liberation feminist movement of the of the 70s. And there was a real kind of sense of forward movement. We had our own publications. We were starting to, to have a voice. It was, I suppose, starting to be a possibility, I suppose, of, of the kind of society where we'd be just part of society without being on the fringes. This is Val McDermott. And then uh, along came Section 28, Clause 28 initially, where local authorities banned from doing anything to promote homosexuality, which essentially meant not allowing plays that had a gay theme to be performed in, in theatres that were owned by local authorities, not allowing teachers to talk about texts that, that featured homosexuality, not allowing schools to teach homosexuality in the course of sex education lessons, essentially trying to negate the existence of gay people. And of course, the AIDS crisis completely demonised gay men. So it became this sort of, it was the gay plague. The hysteria around it was perceived as, you know, gays coming and infecting decent people. And all of these things just created a very hostile environment, particularly to gay men, and less so to lesbians, because we were still, by and large, invisible. But it kept us invisible. It kept us in a place where our existence was somehow negated. But to what degree does Thatcher carry the cam for Section 28? We asked Lisa Power. Well, she absolutely carries the cam because she could have stopped it, and she didn't. And frankly, it's even more reprehensible because she didn't care, in my opinion. And this is based upon many conversations I've had with people who were quite close to her and to the issue from the Conservative Party side at the time. Essentially, it was the equivalent of the ERG then who were just mad about um, gay people and uh, LGBT people, or in those days, lesbians and gay men, had become a massive scapegoat in the media and you know, in terms of somebody to kick. And essentially, she had close gay male friends at the time. She was not herself particularly homophobic, except in the sense that she was kind of sexphobic generally. But she let the right wing do it because she wanted to keep them happy and on her side. So she bears the responsibility for it in the same way that Theresa May bears the responsibility for what's going on at the moment over Europe. She let the right wing run roughshod over her when actually she, on a personal level, should have known better. Here's how Edwina Curry remembers it. I don't think she was that prejudiced, but the world at large was very prejudiced. There were others who could, could be extremely unpleasant, who really we had to skirt round. There's an old battle plan. If you can't conquer every single town on a, a hill, you just flow the army around it and keep going until you've cut them all off. <laughs> the movement to change the law and to make it less prejudicial flowed from many people feeling that Clause 28 was discriminatory and wrong. And it was my view when we started getting into serious discussions that the way to deal with this was to tap into conservative thinking. Now, conservative thinking was we want as little legislation as possible, but we want everybody equal under the law. So we're not talking about gay rights. We're not talking about human rights. We're talking about equal rights. And we're talking about good people, 
paying their taxes and being good citizens. And the fact that they're gay is none of our business. And that was intellectually tremendous fun to promote because it left the prejudiced people waving their Bibles and looking a bit silly. And Margaret was not one of them. I mean, she was much more against Sunday trading and the lottery. In 1989, Stonewall was founded to lobby against Section 28. As one of its founders, we asked Lisa if Thatcher's legacy is a politically active gay community. I think one of Thatcher's legacies is not so much a politically active gay community because we had a politically active gay community before Section 28, but it was a very small one. It wandered around in double denim with lots of badges on and went to demonstrations with placards, and it didn't relate to the vast majority of lesbians and gay men who sort of wanted a quiet life with equal rights but didn't really want to go out there and go on demos and and generally be what they felt was slightly loutish. And what happened with Stonewall was that what was intended originally to be a small, discreet lobbying group tapped into this vast hinterland of lesbians and gay men who had become more politically aware as a direct result of Section 28. They felt that something should be done, but they would quite like somebody else to do it while they funded it from the privacy of their own homes and maybe wrote to their MP occasionally. Stonewall completely fitted into people who wanted to be armchair activists or to support other people to go into Parliament and talk to these MPs that felt terribly remote. And I think one of the genius things that Stonewall did very early on was to copy other civil rights movements in getting lesbians and gay men and their families and their allies to write to members of parliament, to become visible, to actually go into politicians' surgeries and say, we're the people you did this to. It's not right. Polarisation over Brexit appears to have given people permission to be just as horrible as they possibly could be. And I fear echoes of that period where it became acceptable to be homophobic It was, of course, still acceptable to be racist and acceptable to be misogynist. Those things were very much a feature of the Thatcher years. And I do see them re-emerging now. I think not to the same extent. They're not respectable in the same way, quite, but they're still very much present. When people want to find a stick to beat you with, then they're handy sticks. Thanks, Val. You're not wrong, sadly. People are really rather afraid that this country might be rather swamped by people with a different culture. And you know, the British character has done so much for democracy, for law, and done so much throughout the world, that if there's any fear that it might be swamped, people are going to react and be rather hostile to those coming in. That was Margaret Thatcher talking to ITV's World in Action in 1978. Following the post-war recruitment of British citizens from within the Commonwealth, there was an immigration boom into the UK, in particular from the Caribbean, India and Pakistan. Many of those arriving in the UK found the reception to be far less welcoming than they'd imagined, with immigrants often forced into substandard housing in poorer areas such as Notting Hill, famous for its carnival which began in 1959 in response to the race riots that preceded it. Prior to 1939, black communities had tended to settle in poor areas like Liverpool, Glasgow and Cardiff. 
Amid increasingly difficult economic circumstances and heightened tensions between police and ethnic minority communities, riots occurred in areas with increased immigrant populations during the 1980s, and this time they were not confined to London. In 1981, unrest broke out in cities including Bristol, Manchester, Birmingham and Liverpool. 1981 just happening to be a year that unemployment in the UK was at a 50-year high. Tensions have been escalating for a number of years and Pragnan Patel, now director of Southall Black Sisters, remembers the 1979 riots in London Southall, an area with a large Asian community, which broke out less than two weeks ahead of Thatcher's election. 79 is a very seminal moment in the history of anti-racist struggles in this country, particularly anti-racist struggles waged by Asians. In the 70s we, and 60s, we've seen racial uprisings around the country, predominantly in very black areas of Brixton and elsewhere. But 79 was Southall's moment. The National Front, which was indicative of a kind of a resurgence of right-wing fascism and racism in the country as a whole. The National Front, intending to march through Southall, in fact did march through Southall in a very provocative manner, knowing that it was a largely Asian community, and decided to hold a meeting at Southall Town Hall, a rally, a political rally. It was a provocative act designed to unsettle the community and to instill fear. So the community, together with other anti-racist activists and supporters, decided to hold a counter-protest against the presence of the National Front. Certainly, I think that 1979, the advent of Thatcher, the wider climate for black and minority communities is very much one of feeling beleaguered, feeling very, very much excluded, treated as outsiders, treated as less than citizens. And part of that experience was the way in which racism was institutionalized in the police force. The black experience of racism was perhaps at its most visceral in terms of its relationship with black youths in particular and the police stop and search, harassment on the streets. These were all part of daily experiences. Under Thatcher, those experiences heightened as civil unrest broke out throughout the country. As Thatcher's economic policies took their toll across the country, non-white communities were often hit particularly hard. In the Toxteth area of Liverpool, for example, this historically black community saw 40% of the male population unemployed, with estimations putting black youth unemployment in the area of around 80%. We then have a series of economic policies that led to massive unemployment and deprivation and communities that became more and more deprived were largely those places where black minority and immigrants and other groups lived. So they were disproportionately impacted by the economic policies of the government, the infrastructure being allowed to just waste away. It wasn't just economic conditions and tensions with the police that impacted on race relations during Thatcher's era. One of the most famous examples of immigration to the UK is the 1948 Empire Windrush from Jamaica. And at its peak in 1956, immigration from the Caribbean hit around 30,000 in that year. The same time period saw roughly double that number in Irish immigrants, because in reality there have been far greater numbers of white than non-white immigrants arriving in the UK. From the 60s onwards, successive governments sought to reduce immigration into the UK, with several toying with legislation that could actively prevent the settlement of non-white immigrants. In 1981... Thatcher's government implemented the Nationality Act, which was perceived by many to have found a way to do exactly that. 
The immigration policies under Thatcher were very much perceived as racist. The Nationality Act of the time meant that you were only allowed citizenship if your parents and grandparents were born here. And that, in effect, prevented many Asians from claiming citizenship because, of course, their parents and grandparents are unlikely to have been born in the UK, whereas many white South Africans, Australians, Canadians, New Zealanders were able to claim citizenship because they usually had parents or one parent or grandparent or their parents before them who were born in the UK. So that is an example of how racism actually formed the foundations of that particular act. Other ways in which racism impacted through immigration laws and policies is that a lot of, for example, Asian women coming to the UK who said they were married were assumed to be involved in sham marriages. And one of the things that the government did was to make it very difficult for family reunification to take place. And the other way in which immigration policies impacted particularly on Asian women was the ways in which if Asian women lived in this country and married, the assumption was that Asian women live with their husbands in their household so that they thought they could go back. Therefore made it very difficult for Asian women to sponsor their husbands to this country because it was assumed that they were not the breadwinners that the real breadwinners were the husbands and that as Asian women, they're meant to be dutiful to their culture and to their families. Therefore, they should be joining their husbands rather than husbands joining them. So these assumptions, these kind of racialized gender stereotypes formed the foundations upon which immigration policies were based. And they were very exclusionary, but they were selectively excluding people from certain parts of the world and not others. Samira Ahmed thought the impact of that was far-reaching. The Nationality Act that she brought in in 1981, so that was relatively early in her first term, which took away the automatic right of citizenship if you were born in the UK. So they definitely felt like the start of trying to change the rule on who could be British and that sort of covenant, if you like, that had existed about Commonwealth citizens being British because we were all part of the Commonwealth and we'd served. And going back to slavery, there was a sense of a kind of two-way relationship. She tore that up. That was a big moment. And I remember my parents talking about how this had changed everything for future generations, because my parents came on Indian passports and they didn't have to worry about having the visa. That was the beginning of what I guess we'd now call a hostile environment. That hostile environment was felt by many, including Pragna, Samira and Aisha Hazarika. Thatcher's Britain, I was a visitor in it, but I was never allowed to really be part of it. I think there was quite a lot of racial tension as well when I was growing up in the 80s. She was not somebody who reached out to different immigrant communities and sent a message to everybody saying, look, welcome everybody, include everybody. We're a country that welcomes different people. She didn't care much for migrants. She didn't care much for race relations. She famously said that she sympathised with native populations for being afraid of being swamped by other migrants and immigrants coming into the country. 
And she was talking largely about black immigrants because she didn't have the same antipathy towards white immigrants who were, say, coming from the newly created Zimbabwe or South Africa or anywhere else. A kind of general endorsement of racist attitudes because under her leadership, she endorsed right-wing authoritarian regimes. You know, she supported apartheid in South Africa. She had took tea with Pinochet. You know, so that... That is what she and her government stood for. Everyone now goes on about how they were anti-apartheid, but Margaret Thatcher was very proudly not bothered by apartheid. The Tory party for an incredibly long time had no problem doing business with South Africa. Perhaps one of the most interesting things, and, and it's a sign that ideologically her more extreme thoughts haven't taken root, is that people tend to forget some of those issues or they play them down or they want to ameliorate the way that she's seen. I mean, I'm sure there's an argument that says, oh, well, you know, by, by taking the approach she did, Margaret Thatcher was actually helping bring about a peaceful transition to democratic government in South Africa. Whereas I think, judging by her husband's point of view, I just don't think she really cared very much if black people were treated as second-class citizens. Arguably, the hostile environment, which we hear so much about now, from Theresa May's racist vans, to the Windrush scandal, to the resurgence of the far right, is the legacy left behind by Thatcher in terms of race relations in the UK today. The immigration one, I think more and more, I think the way that it's all kind of come back up and the hostile environment towards people, making them pay for things that they shouldn't have to pay for. You know, all those documents you have to pay to provide to get your citizenship and stuff. All these little ways in which, and and the whole Windrush thing, I think that can be traced right back to the British Nationality Act of 1981, which is that was the point when you started to divide people by race. 79 was a period of fascism, fascism on the streets that we witnessed in Southall in 1979, a period of rising racism, period in which racism was consolidated in immigration laws, period in which racism was felt very viscerally through police relations with communities. All of that, I have to say, after 40 years, has resurfaced and resurfaced in really, really ugly ways. There is no question that we can't trace that back to the Thatcher legacy. That was part one. Thanks for listening. In part two, we focus on what Thatcher did for, or indeed to, country, society and state. Thanks to all of the women who contributed to this special episode of the Standard Issue podcast. Val McDermott, Dame Professor Athene Donald, Edwina Curry, Aisha Hazarika, Jess Phillips, Caroline Slowcock, Samira Ahmed, Alison Inman, Sophie Walker, Lisa Holdsworth, Libby Liebert, Lisa Power and Pragna Patel. And some of these women have books relevant to this documentary, which you can find available online or in all good bookshops. You can find out more about Edwina Curry's time in office in her book, Diaries 1987-92. Jess Phillips' book, Every Woman, is out now, as is Aisha Hazarika's book, Punch and Judy Politics. And you can read more about Caroline Slowcock's time in office with Margaret Thatcher in her book, People Like Us, Me and Margaret Thatcher. Standard issue for all women.